Amen. Thanks, Jonathan, for praying for us and Simon for leading the first part of our service. If you have a Bible, please do turn with me to Mark chapter 15 and uh, do follow along with me as we look down through it together. Last week, I was cutting an onion at home and uh, I noticed that the knife I was using was rather blunt It was quite ineffective. It wasn't really doing the job that it was intended to do. So I put away that knife and I took out another one. And uh, it was pretty ineffective too. I was cutting away and it wasn't doing anything. So I got out this uh, little device that we bought a while ago. It's called an Any Any Sharp. And it it claims to be the world's best knife sharpener. It's got this wee suction cup and you you stick it down here and you, you clip that down and then you can run your knife through it and it will sharpen it. And uh, I did that, and I must say the difference it made was absolutely incredible. Started to just whip through the onions, no tears involved. Now, why do I start with that little illustration? Well, the passage that we come to this morning is a bit like that knife sharpener, only this passage is not designed to sharpen knives, it's designed to sharpen Christians. It's a good way to think of your Bible, actually. Every passage, in some way, is to have a sharpening effect on our lives. But this one in particular is given to sharpen our edge. What do I mean? Well, in our Christian lives, I'm sure you feel it, as do I, we have a tendency by nature to grow dull and to lose our edge concerning the things of God. Grace at once amazed us, quickly becomes dull. Our prayer lives quickly lose their edge, and our passion for evangelism and missions can get quickly blunted. Well, as I said, God's Word, and in particular, this morning's passage, is designed to do the same job that this knife sharpener does. It's to have an effect on our lives. It's given to sharpen our wonder at the grace of God revealed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How does the passage do this? Well, this morning in this account, Mark presents to us the historical account of Jesus' trial before the Roman governor of the day, a man called Pontius Pilate. But as Mark so often does, he presents the historical account in such a way that it becomes a lot more than just a historical account. He presents Jesus' trial before Pilate as the last account before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he presents it in such a way that it stands as a final parable of what Jesus is going to accomplish through his death. Mark has done this, we've seen, several times in his gospel. When he healed the leper, it was a parable in a sense. The unclean becomes clean at the touch of Jesus. He did this with the healing of the blind man in two different stages. He could see 
but he couldn't see clearly. And that was a picture of the disciples. And what happens in our lives when Jesus touches us, we see something of his greatness and glory, but we don't see fully until that day when we will see him fully when he returns or brings us home to himself. So here, just before the crucifixion account, we're given this account of the trial of Jesus before Pilate, and it leaves us with one clear picture and one simple truth resounding as Jesus goes to the cross. And that simple truth and picture is this. We're given a picture of an innocent man, Jesus, who is condemned, and a picture of a condemned man, Barabbas, who goes free. That's what we're to see in this trial. The innocent man is condemned, and the condemned man goes free. It is a beautiful picture and parable of the gospel. Some passages call for us to do certain things as a response, to change the way we think, or to stop doing something, or to start doing something. This is a passage designed to stir our hearts, not so much to call us to do something, though there's plenty that it calls us to do, but it's a passage that invites us again to be put into the knife sharpener of God's Word, to have our wonder sharpened, our amazement at the grace of God sharpened, that we'd be made transformed from being dull to being bright again with this simple truth the innocent man is condemned and the condemned man goes free. Mark presents this trial in two very simple scenes. If you look down, you'll see the first scene is in verses 1 to 5. And Mark focuses in on the silence of Jesus and his innocent before Pilate. I'm going to call that first scene the silence of the Lamb. Then in the second scene, verses 6 to 15, Mark focuses on what I'm going to call the sentencing of the Lamb. And we're going to see that glorious gospel picture that is left reverberating in our hearts and minds as Jesus goes to the cross. The innocent man is condemned and the guilty man goes free. And as we look down through the two scenes, I'm going to apply, bring out several applications along the way that I hope will humble us and instruct us, but most of all, brighten again our astonishment at the grace of God. So let's get into the first scene, the silence of the Lamb, in verses 1 to 5. Last week, we saw Jesus' trial before the Jewish religious authorities who condemned him to death for blasphemy because of his claim to be the Son of God. These Jewish religious leaders, though, had a bit of a problem. Because they were under Roman occupation and authority, they had themselves no authority to practice capital punishment. They had to get authority to do that from the local Roman governor. That's Pontius Pilate. So our passage opens here in verse 1 with the religious leaders wasting no time in making their final plans and taking Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, for another trial. We read there in verse 1, as soon as it was morning. 
The leaders held a consultation. They bound Jesus and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, this man, Pilate, was not a very significant figure. In some ways, history probably would have forgotten all about him except for his role in the trial of Jesus. We learn in verse 10 of this account that Pilate was shrewd and perceptive enough to discern the envy behind the religious leaders handing Jesus over to him. But he was too weak a leader to take a stand on principle to defend an innocent man. Now, the Jewish religious leaders in bringing Jesus to Pilate knew that Pilate would not be interested at all in hearing any religious charge about blasphemy. He would have said, go and judge him by your own laws. So the Jewish leaders wisely translate Jesus' claim to be the Messiah and the Son of God, which he clearly professed in chapter 14, verse 62. When asked about being the Messiah, the Son of God, he said, I am. But the Jewish religious leaders translate that into something that will gain traction with Pilate. They spoke of Jesus' claim to be a king. And the reason for doing this is because they knew that someone claiming to be a royal authority could be seen as an act of treason and rebellion against the emperor. Pilate would have to take such a charge seriously. Luke actually tells us in his gospel something more of the charge that the religious leaders brought before Pilate. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So in verse 2, Pilate responds to their charges by asking Jesus himself, are you the king of the Jews? Now, I want you to notice something here because Mark wants us to notice something here in this account. He wants us to get this title, the king of the Jews, firmly fixed into our minds now and throughout Jesus' trial, suffering, and crucifixion. This term, the king of the Jews, has not been used up to this point in the gospel, but right now in the rest of this section, it's used five times in this chapter. Let's just look at them real quickly. Verse 2, we just heard, are you the king of the Jews? Then down in verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Verse 12, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Go forward to verse 18. The soldiers mock Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And the crescendo of the whole theme comes in verse 26. The placard on the cross, the King of the Jews. It's so clear. Mark wants us to notice that and get it. Though it is a term filled with irony and misunderstanding in the chapter, we, the readers of this gospel, are to see here is the King of Israel, the Messiah, moving through his ceremony of coronation. But his crown would not be of gold, it would be of thorns. His throne would not be a grand golden chair. 
it would be a rugged wooden cross. This is Mark's way of saying, behold God's King, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is your King, a King who came not to be served but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. This is what we are to understand, the kingdom value of what a king is. So Jesus answers Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews in verse 2? Quite enigmatically, he says, you have said so. Now this is Jesus' way of saying, yes, it is as you say, but you would do well to ponder what that actually means. Yes, I am a king, but a different kind of king that you're thinking about. As he would say and would be recorded in another gospel, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, in verse 3, we read of the chief priests continuing to hurl accusations at him to make sure he's condemned. And Pilate looks on as this venom is just poured over Jesus. And he, Jesus, calmly stood there in silence. Verse 4, Pilate asks Jesus, and you're to feel his astonishment. Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Pilate's saying, why aren't you defending yourself? Anyone would defend himself in this moment when such accusations are being made against them. But of course, we know why Jesus is holding his peace in this moment. He has resolved to go all the way through to the cross for us. He had resolved, remember in Gethsemane, to take the cup that the Father had set before him. And I think we're to see in this moment the depiction of Jesus again as the silent lamb that the prophet Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so we read at the end of this first scene in verse 5, Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed. Jesus has said all he has to say in his trial, and now he lets events take their course. And Pilate, seeing his innocence, and his composure in the face of such attacks, Pilate is deeply impressed by this. It's left an, in, an indelible indentation in Pilate's heart. And we with Pilate are to behold the glory of the strength and silence of Jesus in this moment the lamb who remained silent in submission to his father's will, out of love for his father and love for his flock, remaining silent, bearing the venom 
so that we would never be touched by the venom of judgment. Now, there is such a powerful picture for us here to take something from, I think. I'm sure you've witnessed this in your own life. There is such power in the witness of someone undergoing suffering, but with a quiet, submissive, bearing up under trial while trusting in the Lord attitude. I'm sure you've seen it. Someone going through great pain. And they're quiet, and they wrestle with God, and they trust the Lord even though they don't understand everything God's doing, but they bear up under the weight of trial. There's such power in that kind of witness. It's not something I think that we can muster up ourselves. It's something that we pray now, Lord, when the time comes and when I'm going through my own trial, whatever shape it takes, I trust for your strength to carry me through that I would not fail you in that moment. You read countless stories of martyrs who went to their death for the gospel and how moved some of their torturers and executioners were by the quiet, faithful witness of those who gave their lives unto death. Now, we know that Jesus' trial was unique. His death was unique, for it was a death to atone for our sins. But let's remember the apostle Peter said in his letters repeatedly that Jesus' suffering in his trial actually stands as an example for us to follow. And he says in 1 Peter 4.19, let those suffering according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. So let's behold the uniqueness and the beauty and the strength of the silence of Jesus in this moment. And let's pray inwardly that we would have strength from the Lord to bear up under trial whatever shape our trial may take as we seek to follow Jesus and be like Him. Well, after the silence of the Lamb that is the focus of that first scene, the second scene takes us now to the sentencing of the Lamb. Verse 6 introduces us to something we're familiar with in Northern Ireland, a custom of an early prisoner release scheme. Each year at the feast of Passover, the governor would release one prisoner for whom the popular crowd asked for. Mark then introduces us in verse 7 to this man, Barabbas. We're told he was among a group of rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. That was a sort of anti-Rome uprising by a Jewish paramilitary group. Barabbas was a, a terrorist of sorts, a kind of anti-Rome freedom fighter, and he'd been captured and imprisoned. In verse 8, we're told that the crowd comes up to this public kind of trial that's going on. They ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them, 
to release the prisoner that they requested. And Pilate asks them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He clearly doesn't want Barabbas to be out on the run again. We're told then in verse 10 that Pilate knew fine well that it was because of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up for the death sentence. But as Pilate asked the question to the crowd, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? We read that the chief priests had already gathered supporters, prompted the crowd, had their plants in amongst the people so that the crowd would be whipped up into some kind of mob hysteria and start asking for Barabbas instead because they wanted to make sure that Jesus would be condemned. So we read that the crowd said, give us Barabbas. Do you see that in verse 11? Release, they asked for the release of Barabbas instead. Now, I just sat in my study this week at this point, and I thought to myself, what must have run through the mind of Jesus in that moment? Imagine that's you, and you have a crowd shouting, no, we don't want to set him free. Give us Barabbas. The true liberator Jesus, rejected for a terrorist. Truly, he was, as Isaiah said, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Imagine the feeling of a crowd rejecting you in that way when you're innocent. Pilate responds in verse 12. Well then, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And imagine again the heart of Jesus as he would hear the crowd shout, crucify him. Pilate seems to have been taken aback by this. It's escalating, it's getting out of control. Why, he says, why? What evil has he done? I notice the crowd has no answer to this question, but with the mindlessness of a mob, they cry out all the louder, crucify him. Now, we have been on some journey through this gospel. A year and a half now, I think it's been, and we have seen the tenderness, the sovereign beauty of Jesus on display again and again, welcoming the children, placing his hand on the untouchable, drawing near people to find hope and life in him. He has done no evil. He has only spoken the truth. And here now the crowd bears for his blood. I think we're to feel Pilate's question, why? What evil has he done? Now, Pilate knows Jesus is the innocent man. And yet he feels the pressure of the crowd and the chief priests and what they want. 
John records for us in his gospel that the crowd and the chief priests were also shouting out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate finds himself in a difficult position. And in verse 15, we read of how Pilate came through his own trial. Sadly, he caved to the popular pressure of the crowd. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and delivered Jesus for scourging and crucifixion. And everything within us here is to feel the wrongness of that. Pilate sacrificed an innocent man for political expediency. He threw Jesus under the bus for his own popularity. Now, there's a real challenge again for us here as we reflect on this. I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, what form does our crowd take that makes us reject Jesus so that we'll be accepted and liked by the crowd? Younger people here especially, who feel that peer pressure all the more, though let's admit, it, I don't know, I'm only 38, but it certainly hasn't left me, that sense of the pressure of popularity and people and worrying about what people think. In what ways do we do what Pilate did? Peer pressure can make us throw Jesus under the bus so that we can be accepted and liked. We can reject Jesus to satisfy our need to be popular. Let me say, beware, that is a cup that never satisfies. Seeking continually the popularity of people and giving in to your moral convictions for the sake of that popularity, where does that end? I think this example of Pilate's failure is a clarion call to us in our generation. What we need today, in this day, where, let's admit it, we are being pressurized as Christians to cave to the popular moral notions of the day. What we need in this day is young men, young women, older men, older women, middle-aged men, middle-aged women. We need people who will courageously take their stand and say, I don't care what you think about me. I'm taking my stand for Jesus. I was reading in my own Bible in a Year plan this morning, Joshua 1 to 3, just those three chapters in Psalm 52. And I was so encouraged by God's word to Joshua repeatedly in those first few chapters. Be strong and courageous. In, ver in chapter 1, verse 7, I just noted this into my notes quickly this morning. God said through, uh, to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Not just courageous, very courageous. And then he went on to say, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Young Joshua needed that encouragement as he would follow in the footsteps of the, the leader Moses. 
could start to think, the great Moses. But remember how Moses started out. God made him a man of God. God made him a leader. And it would be the same for Joshua. And it's the same for us. Where are the young Joshuas of this day? Where are the the young men and women of God who will hear God say, be strong and very courageous in your day? Don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. I'll be with you as you take your stand for the Lord. You know, Pilate's called the governor, but he was strangely governed by the popular opinion of the the crowd on that day. That is such a picture of the modern-day man or woman. We love to think we're the the authority, we're the trendsetters, we're free, and yet we are so controlled by the currents of popular opinion. And as Christians today, we are called to be men and women of conviction. And I want to call our city, our generation, to being a new people of courage in this day so that we would see from our own midst courageous men and women of God going into all their spheres this week, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or you're a teacher or whether you're a cleaner or whether you're a servant or driving a bus or whatever shape your work takes, that we would have courageous men and women of God who are not going to throw Jesus under the bus so that they can be liked and popular Now, it doesn't mean we go out and and ram it down people's throat, but we are always ready to speak of our hope and our convictions and the life that we have that is life. So let's see in Pilate's failure a call to us not to fail in that way, to be men and women of courage in our day and age as we stand for Jesus, even when it's unpopular. Now, Pilate's cardus is a challenge to us, but I don't actually believe Pilate is the man we are to identify with most closely in this account. Strangely, the man we are to identify with most closely is this man we know very little about, the man named Barabbas. Relatively few people are named in all four Gospels. John the Baptist is. Mary Magdalene is among that group. Pilate is mentioned in all four Gospels. The disciples aren't in that group of people named in all four Gospels. John doesn't give a catalog of all the names of the disciples. Mark doesn't mention Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, at all. But this man, Barabbas, does make it into this fairly exclusive group. And I think clearly we're to take notice of something in the appearance of Barabbas. Matthew tells us he was a notorious criminal. Mark and Luke tell us he was involved in murder. John tells us he was a robber. Pilate clearly didn't want him to be on the loose. He wanted to see Jesus released initially. Yet as the account unfolds, we see 
in that very last verse what Mark once left ringing in our ears as we go to the cross with Jesus. We see that in the end, the innocent man Jesus is condemned and the guilty man Barabbas goes free. And as I said in the beginning, this is the parable of the gospel on display in this account. Like the story of Peter in his failing is our story, the story of Barabbas in his release is our story. Barabbas is a strange type of every sinner who is liberated by the innocent man being delivered over to death. You see, the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of our sin is death. We are all by nature under the sentence of death, condemned to an eternity away from God in hell. Barabbas would have gone to the cross if Jesus hadn't. But Jesus took his place, and Barabbas walked free. Now this is, remember, a parable, so we don't see it perfectly matching. You know, we're not to think Barabbas was justified in that moment, like we are justified in Christ. There is something here, though, that is to be left as a beautiful picture of the gospel just before Jesus goes to the cross. We are to see in the story of Barabbas our story. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took our place. Though we reject him, forget him, are dull to his grace and glory, he took our place as sinners so that we could be set free from our condemnation. And if Jesus hadn't taken the cross for us, we would be on it. If Jesus hadn't taken the wrath of God for us, we would bear it, and we could not bear it. should have been you and me facing the wrath of God. It should have been you and me drinking the cup. But Jesus took the cup out of our hand to set us free. And remember, the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Romans 8 tells us this wonderful story. There is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about that with me. Once under a sentence of condemnation to face the wrath of God, eternal hell. That's what was on us. But because Jesus said, I will take your place, there is now, for you liberated by Christ, no condemnation. None. Jesus took the cup and drunk it down and emptied it of the wrath of God for you. Emptied it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God did what we could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
he stayed silent for you, Barabbas. He went to the cross for you, Barabbas. And now you walk away from your crimes a free man or a free woman. Not to go back to a life of sin, but to pursue a life of holiness and flourishing as you walk in God's ways. And you're to feel like the knife sharpener, (laughs) this text doing its work on your wonder and your astonishment at the grace of God. You know, there's a powerful little irony in this passage that you don't see initially. And it's in the name Barabbas. (laughs) Do you know what the name Barabbas means? Bar in Hebrew typically means son of, Abba, Abba's. Father. It's incredible. You've got two sons of the Father in the narrative. Jesus, the true son of the Father, and this pseudo-son of the Father. And I don't know necessarily whether to make much of this or not, but see, when I just reflected on that, I just thought, wow, the son of the Father, Jesus, was condemned. He took my place as a sinner so that I could walk away a true son of the Father adopted into the family of God and live in the fullness of what that identity means. The, father, the Father's Son took our place as sinners so that we could have the Son's place as sons. First Peter, Peter put it like this again, First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And the question that I want to close with as we move into the Lord's table together to celebrate this solemn, glorious truth is how will you respond to this powerful parable that's set before us this morning? Is this Jesus not worthy of your humble thanksgiving, your praise, and your devotion? You're standing firm in a day when the pressure to fold is on if you are not a Christian here, will you not receive this son and in so doing be made a son of God yourself or a daughter of God? If you're here and you're a Christian, I would invite you to respond in the following three ways. First, be praying even now, Lord, restore the edge to my wonder. My astonishment has grown dull. Restore the edge. Second, I would encourage you to ponder the accomplishments of Jesus in your place and for you as we move towards Easter. To help you with that, just want to hold up this book, Your Sorrow Will Turn to Joy, Morning and Evening Meditations for Holy Week, week, um, uh, put together by the folks at Desiring God. There's a number of people contribute to it. It's very helpful morning and evening readings that lead right from Palm Sunday through to Easter Sunday. I think you'd find that helpful take this opportunity to ponder, slow yourself down, and just think even of the silence of the Lamb. And then finally, pray and ask for fresh courage that you might go out and be one who is ready to testify to the glory of the grace of God to your neighbors, 
to your friends, to your colleagues, as opportunities arise. Perhaps it could be to invite someone to the Mark's gospel drama over the Easter weekend or to invite someone to church this Easter. People will still come for a Christmas carol service and for an Easter service. But let's together put ourselves into the knife sharpener of God's word regularly that our wonder wouldn't grow dull but would be sharp and bright that we might be effective instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. A very simple presentation of Jesus' trial before Pilate and the outcome where the innocent man was condemned and the guilty man went free. For us who are in Christ this morning, that's our story. An innocent man was condemned so that I could be set free. Even though we are failures like Peter and the other disciples, our failure is not final. Our failures don't define us. But your incredible grace and forgiveness and mercy now defines us. You don't count our sins against us in Christ, Father. And because you set forth the innocent man to be condemned so that we could go free, that we could receive your spirit and be alive in Christ, we are called now to be those people who respond with thankful hearts, offering our whole lives as living sacrifices, seeking to be bold witnesses in these days, speaking and overflowing with joy in the glorious grace that has been shown to us and given to us in Christ. The innocent man condemned that the guilty would go free. We thank you. And as we sing now and then gather around your table where, where we see so clearly again space given to us to ponder on the condemnation of Christ so that we could be set free. Oh Lord, let us feel again the sheer relief the beauty, the wonder at what Jesus did for us. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing to prepare for gathering around the Lord's table the first two verses of Behold the Lamb, this communion hymn. Um, make sure you've got your bread and your cup if you're sharing with us in communion. Um, and if you have forgotten that on the way in, maybe you could just slip and grab it there during the song. The guys at the back will help you with that. But let's just prepare our hearts to ponder again everything that Jesus means to us in this moment. Let's stand and sing the first two verses.
Say